You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Sunil Gupta. The practice of Dharma is about alignment. And when you start to align who you are with what you do, even just by a millimeter, you start to free yourself in a brand new way. That is Sunil Gupta, the founder of RISE which partnered with First Lady Michelle Obama to deliver low-cost health coaching to people in need. Rise was named App of the Year by Apple and is now owned by Amazon. Sunil serves as a visiting scholar at Harvard Medical School and an emissary for gross national happiness between the U.S. and the Kingdom of Bhutan. He is also the host of a global documentary series that examines how high performers respond to challenges. Sunil is the author of Backable and Everyday Dharma. I cannot wait to dive into this conversation with Sunil Gupta. Sunil, how are you? Hi, Kate. Well, first of all, thank you for being on To Dine For, the podcast. I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. Your background is so fascinating, but I'm going to begin the way I begin all my podcasts by asking the guest their favorite restaurant. I know that you grew up in Michigan. I know that you have lived a little bit of everywhere. So I'm really fascinated to find out like what could be your favorite restaurant. And if you could take me anywhere, where would it be? 
Yeah. So I'm going to take you to Michigan. Okay. I'm going to take you to suburban Michigan Great. to a place called Salvatore Scalapinis Ooh. in a town called Novi, Michigan, which is where I worked through most of high school. I started out as a pasta maker inside this little restaurant. You did not. Are you serious? I did. I did. So it was, it was really interesting because they actually imported one of these really fancy Italian pasta makers. And this was a very small restaurant inside a strip mall, very bare bones, but they had this really fancy machine. It was behind sort of this almost glass bowl. And they had one person who would sort of make this pasta. And that person was me. Wow. And I would literally, it was, it was a great job because people would come and they would sort of look at me through almost this fishbowl. Like yeah. almost that was like a little bit of like an entertainment as well. Yes. But I also was able to like wear my headphones at that time. I wore a watch. I had a Walkman. Uh-huh. I like I would listen to music and I would Been make there. pasta, and they were totally cool with that. Eventually, I got promoted from that role to busboy, <laughs> and then and then to <laughs> server. I spent some time in the back washing dishes as well. But here's the thing: I lived in San Francisco. I've spent a lot of time on the East Coast, and you know places with like great like great restaurants. When I go back to Michigan and I have Salvatore Scalapini's, it is a portal back to my childhood. You know, and I'm pretty sure, by the way, like all the things that we talk about, when we talk about like great food, we talk about, like, you know, farm to table. It, it, it's none of that. This is like almost all manufactured ingredients, but it's a taste of my childhood. I, I, I immediately go back to like riding bikes and, and hanging out with my friends and, uh, and nothing can replace that. And, and that's really a great portal to understanding you and understanding the fact that you, I, I really have a soft spot for anyone who's worked in a restaurant because I really feel like it is the greatest training ground for life and, and handling people and yeah. making people feel good, finding out what people's needs are and delivering yeah. and really understand, like, I always have a saying, you didn't work at Denny's and it shows. Because <laughs> when right. you're in the service industry and you are, you know, boots on the ground, you learn a soft skills that if you don't learn them before the age of 25, it's really hard to catch up. Yeah. And I think restaurants really are one of the greatest places for many reasons, but also they, they tell a little bit about ourselves. And you certainly said a lot with what you said about Salvatore Scalapini. Did I get it right? Yeah, you got it absolutely right. Salvatore Scalapini, that's right. That's great. Take me back to Michigan then. So to how you grew up and what you wanted to be when you were going off to college. Did you want to become a lawyer? Because you have a law degree. I do have a law degree. You know, I think being a lawyer was probably more what I thought I should do rather than what I wanted to do. And that showed. That's why my career ended up in a very different direction ultimately after law school. But, you know, growing up, I mean, there are stories that impact our lives. We don't realize they're happening at the time. And then looking back, you know, you realize, wow, that was the moment that things began to change. And for me, you know, it was really watching my father suddenly get sick. He dropped me off uh, at school one day and said, hey, I've got this routine medical exam and I'm going to come pick you up at three o'clock after school and wait wait here by the flagpole. You know, I'm in fifth grade at the time. I go to the flagpole and he's not there. And it's because, you know, that routine medical exam turned into the doctor basically saying, hey, like something's wrong. By the time I was out of school, he was already in the OR. His chest was already cut open. He was having open heart surgery. They caught him what they say is maybe hours before he was about to have a heart attack. And it just so happened to be that he had scheduled this this medical exam, saved his life. 
And it's one of these moments where my dad was in his mid forties, which for me, like I'm in my early forties and I'm approaching the age that he was at. And I remember standing by his hospital bed and just like, he was a different person. He, he had aged decades. It seemed like overnight stress, um, but the experience that really stuck with me was that when he left the hospital, we got all this paperwork. And I remember being in the backseat of our car. We drove a Ford Thunderbird at the time. And I was in the backseat of the car and we're driving back from the hospital. My mom's driving. He's in the passenger seat. And I'm flipping through all this paperwork. And one of the pieces of paper was like how to eat. And the page said like, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. It was like all this sort of, it was an American diet. And I remember thinking to myself, like, my, I have never seen my dad like willingly eat broccoli, Brussels sprouts, not to mention the fact that it's not really a core part of the way that we ate at home. We ate a lot of Indian food. My mom is from what is now Pakistan. My dad is from India. And like, you know, we, we had this like mix of like Cindy and, you know, this like this very like Indian style, South Asian style of cooking. I remember thinking to myself, like, this is just not going to work for him. And it didn't. He was one of the sort of many, many patients in the healthcare system. That, that end up sort of getting back into the hospital shortly after having a major surgery because they can't make the habits stick. So this time around, we end up getting the help of a personal nutritionist. We're lucky. Insurance kicks in. My dad is in a condition where they say, hey, this, this is a person who can help you. And that person ends up helping us customize a diet that actually is going to work because my dad loves food and we, mm. we all love food. And like, to say, hey, we're going to basically give away this thing that we love versus try to modify it in a way that is actually going to let him taste the spices that, that were so important to him, that the diet that he grew up with that brought him back to his childhood. That's what this coach ended up helping us do. And I still think to this day, it, it is the most inspiring story that I've ever sort of seen up close because he completely changed his life around. And the doctors, you know, said at that time that maybe he's got, you know, five, 10 years to live. Like, you know, you, if he's not careful, it's been over 30 years. I spoke to, I spoke to him this morning. He's Aww. on the East coast as well. I'm on the West coast. Great? He took a three mile walk. He is in the condition that he's in today because he was able to get the help of somebody to modify his diet in a way that fit his tastes, but also worked for his health. Okay, this is fascinating. The story is incredibly inspiring. And I can see that it's planted seeds at a young age of what you would end up doing with your Rise app and the yeah. work that you're doing in mental health and wellness. You've written two books. One is Backable, one is Everyday Dharma. And I want to begin by you explaining the concept of Dharma to people yeah. who are not familiar with it. Yeah, definitely. You know, Dharma is what the Bhagavad Gita, the sacred Hindu text would call your sacred duty. You know, this is a duty that you have. And then the question always becomes duty to what? And the answer is duty yourself. Mm. It, it's really, it's really to this fire that's burning inside of you. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to say duty to the world or duty to humanity. You're saying duty to yourself. Yeah. It's duty to your, to your gift, to your, to this fire that, that, and, and ultimately, you know, part of Dharma is sharing that gift in a way that will benefit the world. But the duty is to this thing that is burning inside of you. You know, there's sort of a belief that each of us was given a gift. And, and, I, and I do believe that. I, I, I now travel the world and I meet with leaders and people who are rising in their careers. And I, and I see all these different sort of idiosyncratic personalities, but all of us have like something inside of us. You know, some people call this a purpose. 
My grandfather, who first talked to me about Dharma, taught me at a very early age of what it was, called it your essence. Mm. You know, you have an essence, I have an essence. And when we're expressing that essence, we come alive in a brand new way. You know, we, we, we feel creative, we feel confident, we feel caring, we feel compassionate. But when we're not, we can feel depleted, we can feel exhausted, we can feel depressed. And I think so many of us are feeling that way right now. You look at sort of the overlap. I know that you know, we're going to talk about mental well-being. And one of the things that's been really fascinating for me is that if you look at the number one driver of mental health for the majority of people in the workforce, it's their job. Mm. It's actually what they do each day. And the person who can impact your overall health even more than a doctor or a therapist is your boss. <laughs> right. And, 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 yes, right. Neil, you're right about yeah, that. Right, right, exactly. And so like the point being that oftentimes we have sort of looked at the world of wellness and work as these two separate kind of entities, right? You have to manage your work and you have to manage your well-being, but those two are separate. And the reality is that they're not. You know, your work directly affects your well-being. If you're having if you're having a difficult time inside the workplace, that's going to have a dramatic effect on your physical and mental health and vice versa, by the way. If you feel great, if you feel fit, if you feel like you're in a good place mentally, you're going to do your best work. So there's an intimate relationship between the two of these things. And and I started to begin to realize this when I actually had created this company called Rise. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because yeah. I first of all, I, I saw yesterday, was it yesterday that you were in Boston with Fidelity? Yeah, it was a few days ago. Yeah, yeah, it was a few days ago. Okay, so I saw you there, and I know you give speeches about wellness, and especially spe- specifically in the workplace, and we're going to get into that. But yeah. I really want people to understand your journey first. I know that you know you go to law school, but this experience, this incredibly traumatic and yet enlightening experience happens with your father that has planted a seed. How do you get from going to law school, getting a law degree, mm-hmm. Talk to me about the frustration of not feeling in your dharma and yeah. getting to the rise. How does that happen? I suspected even while I was in law school that it wasn't for me. I, being a lawyer wasn't for me. But you know, I think that I felt what I think many of us feel sometimes, which is that you're sort of on the train, you know, and you've made the investment, yeah, and now you're going forward, and so just do it. And so I did, you know, I ended up going through the sort of the same process of applying to all these different firms. And, and I ended up, you know, my one, I think, saving grace is that instead of going to a big law firm, I ended up going to a small company at the time. It was called Mozilla, uh, which made Firefox, the browser. And they were looking for somebody to help out with the general counsel. It was a very small legal team inside. It was basically one person. And the idea was I was going to go in and sort of be you know, his right-hand person. And so I did, but while I was there, you know, I'm, I'm doing work that is, is, is semi, you know, it's semi-interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not uninteresting. They, they were a nonprofit that was trying to create an internet browser that could compete with, you know, corporate giants like Microsoft at the time. And I found that pretty fascinating, but what was even more interesting to me was like what the developers and the engineers and the designers were doing on the other side of the building. And I constantly found that like I was like gravitating over there. And finally, like this is my luck more than anything else. The people around me, especially a guy named John Lilly, who at that time was CEO of the company, 
was like, it's pretty apparent that you're not that interested in the work that you're doing, but more interested in the work that they're doing, right? <laughs> How and astute was, of him. <laughs> yeah, that was like a nice way of saying like, maybe like the, the, the quality of your work isn't great, but like <laughs> we, but we, but we like you yeah. and we think there's some potential here. So if, if you want to start spending more time over there, let's do it in a less creepy way of you like hovering <laughs> over people's shoulders and like let's give you a project to yeah work on. it was a nudge from the universe that you it were to go in a different universe. in a different direction and you you seized it totally i mean it's exactly what happened and, and again it, it, a lot of it was luck but 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 i will say that like once he said that i was like absolutely i will not let my work with the legal role suffer i will i will do i will do this project and, you know, I worked my ass off on it and we ended up shipping a, a very small feature for the internet browser, which is called personas. And it was a way for you to like basically change the design of that little chrome, that little sort of edge on your browser, change it to a different scheme or color or something that kind of fits you. And it was a really pretty, pretty small thing, but it ended up being very successful. And uh, they were like, okay, well, let's give you a shot at another and then another. And, you know, long story short, that ended up taking me into the role of third product manager. So I was, I was working with designers and engineers and I was on the creative side and I was basically trying to harness, you know, the creativity and brilliance of people who are much smarter than me and trying to figure out how to sort of bring it to consumers. And, and, and it was a world that I, I began to fall in love with. So that took me down the path of like, technology. And then I started to think about like, what are the best case uses for how do we use technology to make things better? And that was when I started to think back to my dad's story and, you know, how a health coach saved his life. Ah, hence Rise, right? And Rise, yeah. we partnered with Michelle Obama to bring this to people everywhere. And give us a description of what Rise does and did. Yeah. So Rise was a one-on-one -on -one health coaching service. So, you know, just like the person who worked with my father, I wanted that service to be accessible to everybody. And I, and I especially wanted that to be something that people didn't need to get to the point that my father was in before they got it, mm. you know, so that there's a, there's a massive population that, you know, I think we all sort of understand this of people who aren't sick, but they don't feel well. Mm -hmm. And, and so we are kind of sliding into the territory and, you know, our healthcare system while wonderful in so many ways, I mean, saved my father's life. My mother had cancer, saved her life. It, it is focused on people who have sort of crossed the threshold into sickness, right? But we don't necessarily help people with making that not happen. And I think health coaching was, was just- I mean, health coaching was such a such a you know brilliant solution. It had been proven through many, many studies that like this is something that can work. If you can have somebody who is an expert- who is compassionate, who can work with you and hold you accountable, but do it in a way that is right for you, customize something that's right for you. It has exceptional results for not just lifespan, but health span, you know, adding not just more days to your life, but adding more life to your days. Mm. The problem is that that kind of service is, is expensive. I mean, it's, you know, you either need to be very sick like my dad was and have healthcare sort of insurance kick in, or you need to be very rich. You know, you were hearing about Kim Kardashian had a health coach. Oprah had a health coach. But like, what about 
people who weren't sick and weren't wealthy. And so Rise was built around this idea of if we use technology the right way, we do it over your mobile phone, we can shrink the price point down to more of a Weight Watchers price point and have it be something that, that, you know, lots of people can afford. That was the idea. And we built it, you know, I ended up, you know, sort of bringing on a team, scrapping together a little bit of investment and it was like an amazing ride. But like many startups, it started slow. We gained just a little bit of traction and a little bit of traction. It was like every day was a little bit of a win. But the big sort of breakthrough for us was that Michelle Obama got wind of our of our app. And she had been doing so much work around obesity mm-hmm. and around you know making the solutions to the obesity epidemic more affordable. She saw what we were doing. Our missions were aligned. So fast forward to me being at the White House, pitching her team on what we were building. We end up partnering together to take this service out to basically areas of the country that were underserved, uh, where people didn't have access to good, affordable care. And the rest was kind of history. Like we ended up, we ended up scaling dramatically from there. Ended up getting lots and lots of new sort of patients and customers onto the platform. Apple named us best app of the year, and we were later acquired by a company a much larger healthcare company called One Medical, which is now owned by Amazon. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, You can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, try the beautiful smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. 
the House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Your book was entitled Backable. I'd love for you to explain that title and what you consider helping people communicate how to be backable. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the reason I wrote the book is because when I was out there raising money for Rise, what I realized is that like, I was not having any luck. I mean, mm. I was I was getting rejected over and over and over again. And I thought to myself, wow, like, I think this is a compelling idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that like the world needs this right now. I have enough of a background, had a decent education. I had had, you know, at that point in time, I had been working in product development for years. I knew the tech space well, and but I wasn't having any luck. You know, one of the things that I sort of realized by talking to investors is that there are a lot of companies out there that are massively successful today that were passed on Mm -hmm. by investors, right? Google was passed on, Airbnb was passed on, uh, Netflix was passed on. The point being that oftentimes it is not the idea itself, but it is the delivery of the idea that makes the difference, right? And and we, we see this all the time. So I really wanted to get into how do we deliver an idea? Yeah. You know, if you have a spark, if you have an imagination for something, how do you share it in a way that gets other people that spark as well? Because it can make the difference. You know, people, we often sort of think about great ideas as, wow, like that was a stroke of genius and that and therefore it's going to be amazing. It's going to get the traction, the support it needs. Not always, right? And we, we, see, we see great ideas die all of the time or not even get off the ground. Yeah, and I, one of the things, you know, on this podcast, all I do is interview founders and CEOs and talk to them about their career trajectory and how did yeah. they become backable. So that's why I was like especially excited to talk to you about this because having done so many interviews, you know, now th- over 300 interviews with these founders and CEOs, yeah. you start to see patterns and it's always interesting to get a different person's take on what it means to be backable. Well, I've never used that terminology. Maybe now I will. I'll give you credit. I've always asked different founders, like, how did they get that first funding and how, when they're in front of VC funding, like what, what is that like? And what is the magic sauce to making yeah. it happen? And how do you answer that question when someone asks you that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think by the way that, the, you know, there's two categories, there is a category of a person who I think is naturally backable, by the way. Like, I do think that there are some people out there where you meet them and you're like, gosh, I, I'm, I'm there. I want to, I like, I want to take a bet on you. And is it because of their charisma and magnetism? So that's what I was trying to unpack. And, and, and the reason that I bring that up is because I think the second category of people is because they had actually worked on it, right? Oh. That there was a, there was a skill set that was built along the way. And I think the majority of us fall into that second bucket. Sure. I certainly do, right? I, I, I was not the person who could walk into a room and share an idea and everyone's like, wow, that's fantastic. We want, we want to back you. I was the person who had to sort of learn. And so what I was doing is I was reverse engineering. What were the traits and characteristics? Like, so for example, I think one of the biggest myths that I had is that there is a charisma about people who are backable. And to a certain extent that that is true, mm-hmm. meaning that if you are charismatic, I do think that that can, that can make you more backable, can make people more inclined to take a chance on you. But what I think is even more important than charisma is conviction. Mm meaning that you actually believe what it is that you are trying to get other people to take action on, right? And you That's believe great. that fully. And that may sound obvious, but 
I don't think it is for, for most of us. It certainly wasn't for me because if you look at, for example, the way that a lot of folks will approach a new idea, they'll almost jump from ideation, like the idea itself, into presentation mode, mm-hmm. right? So for example, a founder who has an idea for a company might actually all of a sudden just jump to starting to create the slide deck mm-hmm. that they're going to share with investors. But when we do that, we miss this step in between, which is what I now refer to as the incubation period, right? And this incubation period is where you are developing conviction right mm. along the way like yourself you are fully starting to convince yourself that this is a great idea and you know what we know now about great i think backable people is that there are all different types of communication styles some are charismatic and some are not i mean look at half of the silicon valley ceos out there you will not find charismatic people but what you will always find i think across both groups charismatic and not charismatic is conviction mm. they have spent time really convincing themselves that this is a good idea, right? They've convinced themselves and then they let that conviction shine through with whatever communication style that it is that comes naturally to them. So just to kind of like emphasize this, if you're listening, I think, and and you have an idea and, and this is like something you want to get out to the world, don't make the mistake that I made, which is to feel like what you now need to do is sort of add lipstick through this charisma, right? And like actually like start to like become more charismatic. I don't think that's the path at all. I think that you stick with the communication style that it is that really resembles you. Like be yourself. That is true. But between here and there, spend real time with an idea, convincing yourself. One more note I'll add on to that because this is an important one. Sometimes the way to ruin conviction is by sharing an idea too early. Mm-hmm. Right, because everyone wants to poke holes in it, right? Everyone's like, can't Every, even, even well-intentioned people yeah. may want to poke holes in it, right? Because like, like, so like, you can almost look at a new idea. Yeah. And, and again, a new idea doesn't have to be for a startup. It could be like literally for something you want to do with your own backyard. Any new idea is like a newborn baby. And you want to coddle it. And you want to make sure that it's protected. And you don't want too many visitors during that time, right? Because it's fragile. I used to make the mistake always of like, as soon as I had the spark of something, I'd go share it with my wife. And my wife is like, we're best friends. Like we, we, like we love each other's ideas. She has the best of intentions for me. But if she so much is like, huh, like give me one little bit of like, hmm, you it know, affects like, your certainty. I'm not, I'm not that excited about it. Yeah. I'd be, I would be devastated. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and the reason for gone. that. The reason for that is because I didn't have enough conviction in it myself. Yeah. So this incubation period is about building enough conviction so that you're ready to take it out into the world and you're okay with people being like, huh, well, what about this? And what about that? And poking holes. And you're okay with that. In fact, that's how you know that you're ready to take it out is when you go from being afraid of people poking holes in your ideas to actually embracing the idea that like people will poke holes because that's actually going to make your idea stronger. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I, I read once that it says when two people enter a room, power goes to the one that is the most certain. Because huh. the, the, if the, which is basically what you're saying, if you're convicted, yeah. when you, if you truly have conviction and certainty, people want that feeling. So they, you influence them, right? The yes. person who is certain influences the person who is pondering, that is in a state of uncertainty. So yeah. it really gets to what you're saying. I want to go back to something you said earlier that I thought was so interesting. You talked about derma, which you know, in, in layman's terms, usually means purpose, and it does because it's sort of a it's 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 a multi layered concept. But you use it as essence, like Dharma is someone's essence. And I love that because it is less intimidating and less threatening than purpose. Like someone's essence is irrefutable, 
right? Like you are yeah. who you are. Your essence is, is, and if you can tap into that, that is conviction in a way. You're already on your way. That's a hundred percent. Gosh, okay. Like that's so, so beautifully stated because the punchline of the book is that when you're in your Dharma, you've already won, mm. right? When you are expressing this thing that is inside of you, you may not end up getting all the outer riches and outer wealth and outer status, but every day turns into a win mm. because you feel much more connected to yourself. You know, essence is who you are. Expression is how you share that with the world. Mm. And Dharma is equal to essence plus expression, mm. right? Mm. And oh, like our that. job, right? And our job is really to bring these things a little bit closer together, right? Sometimes the way that people interpret that is I need to quit my job. I need to go move to the Himalayas. I need to backpack and go find myself. <laughs> um... and, and right, right, exactly. And the reality is that the vast majority of us do not have the ability to do that, right? We have obligations, we have duties, we have responsibilities, kids, drop offs, pickups, aging parents. Like we just can't rip the bandaid off and go just abandon our life. But the good news is you don't have to abandon your life to transform the way that you live. The practice of Dharma is about alignment. And when you start to align who you are with what you do, even just by a millimeter, you start to free yourself in a brand new way. And wouldn't you argue that most people who are unhappy at work are out of alignment in some way? Yeah, I, I, I see that. I see that over and over again. Today, I work with organizations. I work with leaders. I work with people who are completely burnt out. And yes, it, it, it is that they are out of alignment. And you know, sometimes that has to do with the job description. Like they just aren't in the right job. But other times it actually has to do with the way we show up to mm. our job, right? It has, to, it has to do with the sort of energetic level that we have. I mean, it's tough to be in your dharma if you are exhausted, right? It's tough to feel like you have any type of purpose if you are completely depleted. You know, so the way that the, the book is really set up is like, yes, this is what dharma is, but it's really focused on all these things that take us out of our dharma, mm. right? Because- like what? what? What takes us out of our dharma? Give, give me a couple of examples. Yeah. So we just talked about energy, right? And we talked about like, you know, if you are exhausted, it's tough to feel like you're in a state of purpose, right? And so one of the com concepts of dharma that's attached to dharma is what, you know, my ancestors would call prana. And prana is extraordinary energy, right? It's this energetic system inside of you. And when your prana is low, Again, like you can feel you you will feel miserable, right? And 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 by the way, you can have everything at that point in time. You could have a beautiful home, great cars, a nice career, but you'll still feel like something is very very off, right? If your prana is low, so we can do things to lift our own energetic level. Right? And the book, I offer these different what what I call rituals, these things that we can do on a day-to-day -day basis. The reason I I, I thought that is important is because I watched how my dad transformed his life through these little habits. And I wanted to bring these little habits into the book. So for each chapter, there's these little rituals. One of the rituals for prana is what I call rhythmic renewal, hmm. which basically is that, you know, if you look at high performers, people across all different walks of life, whether it be business or art or investing, they aren't waiting for vacations or long breaks in order to get rest. They're recovering every single day throughout the day. They're almost turning renewal into a rhythm. Mm. And 
you know, if you look at the average high performer, they're taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day. Wow. Eight, which is extraordinary. It really is. Yeah. Given the world that we live in, it's like, it's like we're like clicking off of one link, clicking onto another, or as soon as we finish up one thing, we're already late for the next thing. It's just like, it almost seems impractical in the life that we're in. And, and I do feel like things have sort of changed, you know, since the pandemic in a way that like we became more back to back coming out of the pandemic. And we have lost, I think, these little moments that were in between that were almost naturally built up in between. If it wasn't getting up from your desk and walking to a conference room, that was a moment, right? right? Right. Today, we've lost that and a lot of us have. And so one of the ways we can build that back in is through what I offer is the 55-5 model, 55-5, which is pretty simple, which is for every 55 minutes of work or engagement with whatever it is you're doing, you're taking five minutes to reset, mm. five minutes. And that five minutes, you can be doing anything. You can be sipping on a cup of coffee. You can be taking a walk. You could be listening to music. So long as you're do- doing that one thing, you're focusing on that one thing. And I think that like, it's funny because when I talk to like executives and leaders, they'll look at me pretty funny when I, when I offer this 55-5 model because they're kind of like, well, wait a second. My biggest problem is I don't have enough time in my day. Mm. But you're saying that I should shrink each hour by five minutes. Like if I work a nine hour day, what you're basically saying is I should shrink my day by 45 minutes, Right. you know? And so how's that going to help me? And wow. that's the resistance that I think most people- And they feel. don't even see that. They, they That is the response you get? That is the response that most of the time I will get. And the reason wow. that, that the response, and you know, the answer to it is, look, that is true. But what the science has showed us conclusively is that if that five minutes is going to make the other 55 minutes exactly. far more effective, yes. far more energetic, far more creative, far more collaborative. Right. And that's going to cascade to the people around you. All the qualities that we associate with success, you're going to have more of that during that 55 minutes. But I think the reason that it's hard to kind of get your head around is because like, Kate, we've been like so conditioned to think about time, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. you go to Amazon, look up time management, you're going to be met with thousands and thousands of books, right? Go try to find a book, like a good book on how to manage your own energy. Mm-hmm. Right? There's not a lot out there. Yeah. There's not. The irony is that when I've now spent the past 10 plus years out there looking at leaders, teams that have succeeded, as well as those that have fizzled out, people in their careers that didn't quite reach their potential. And what I've realized is that the people who fizzle out, very rarely do they run out of time. What they almost always run out of is energy. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's like, it's as simple as, you know, we've all gone from one Zoom meeting directly into another and how you feel. Yeah. You know, everyone's just like, oh, you can see it on people's faces right there. And they're like, sorry, I'm just, I've just got off one. They're in, they're not in the right headspace. They're not focused. They're not energized. All the things you're saying. And so even yeah. like those five minutes to just, who exhale and think about who, okay, who am I talking to now? And what is the focus of this meeting can be so transformative for the next hour, 55 minutes of conversation, (laughs) you know? For you and for everybody around you. There's a story I talk about in my first book, Backable, that always sticks with me. And it was from uh, about a primatologist, a guy named George Schaller. And Schaller was, if you ever watched the movie Gorillas in the Mist, mm-hmm. Di- Diane Fossey was played by Sigourney Weaver. Schaller, George Schaller was her mentor. He sort of taught her everything that she knew. 
And Schaller, like, he was incredible because he was able to get really, really close to these mountain gorillas, right? And mountain gorillas, like, they're very, very hard to see, let alone get, like, next to. But somehow Schaller was able to do it. And so he's speaking at this conference, and somebody finally raises their hand. They said, listen, I don't get it. The work that we've been doing has been happening for decades, if not over a century, when we've been trying to study these animals. And somehow you're the person who's able to, like, get close to them. Like, how do you do it? And Schaller's response was, I never carry a gun. I never carry a weapon with me. And that was a very confusing response for the people in the room because they were like, well, yeah, I mean, I carry a weapon, but it's in my backpack. It's not like I'm like waving it around at the mountain gorillas. So why would that make a difference? And Schaller's response to that was, well, you may be able to hide a gun, but you can never hide your attitude around a gun. You You can never hide the energy that comes with when you have a gun in your backpack Versus when you don't have a gun in your backpack. And ultimately, what I'm asking these mountain gorillas to do is be vulnerable with me, to let me in. And in order for them to be vulnerable with me, I have to be vulnerable with them. If I have a gun in my backpack, I'm not going to have that level of vulnerability. Yes. And, and, and I think the underlying point here, it comes back to, I think, what we already know, which is that like 90% of communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. We can go into a meeting and we can prepare all of our talking points and what we want to say and what we want other people to do and what actions we want people to take. But at the end of the day, whether we're communicating through a screen or we're inside a room, what we are perceiving more than anything else is your energy, right? And yet we do very little. We very rarely, we always ask ourselves, what do I want to say in this next moment? What do I want to do in this next moment? But what we very rarely ask ourselves is what is the energy that I want to bring to this next moment? Mm, Yeah. And it might be the most important question that you can ask yourself. Yeah. I always feel like my job whenever I do a podcast is to get someone off script because everyone comes with what they want to say and their talking points, which are all very important. And I want to get in all that. But the greatest moments of any conversation are when you watch someone think out loud and they can share something that comes from the heart that is uniquely their essence that you see and you see it kind of spill out of them in real time. And that's a moment, right? And that's that maybe two minutes of a f- our conversation is the entire podcast that, that, that the listener, I believe, will take away. I just want to yeah. say something. I just noticed I have a sign behind me in my office that says, be inspiring. And it's this like rich Kelly Green. And directly uh, behind you is yeah. your everyday Dharma book in oh, the exact yeah. same Kelly Green. It's almost That's like meant so to be. funny. That's so funny. You know, yeah. they, so HarperCollins, they did a really nice job with this book cover. Yeah, and it I, looks I, great. And like, and, and like, I'm surprised because oftentimes like publishers don't do a good job with the book cover, not the first time around, but they really nailed this. And I know anybody's listening can't see this, but like if you take off, it's a, it's a three quarters jacket. And if you take off the cover underneath is a wheel. This wheel is the wheel of Dharma. So you might recognize this as the center of the Indian flag. Awesome. And the center of the Indian flag is the wheel of Dharma, what they, what they call the Ashoka Chakra. And, you know, my Bauji, my, my grandfather, when he first pointed to this wheel, he pointed to the center of a new flag and explained Dharma to me, he said, look, this wheel is your life. And as you get older, the wheel is going to keep spinning faster and faster and faster. Mm. Years are going to start to squish together. You know, each birthday that comes is going to feel like it came just a little bit sooner than the, than the one before it. And eventually it gets, it gets very easy to find yourself at the outside of the wheel where you're literally just like holding on for dear life because there's so much going on. But our job 
is really to find our way back to the center, mm. right? Find our way back to the center of the wheel where it's not like you're escaping what's happening in your life. You're not running away from it, but you're coming back to this center where you can manage everything because you are purely in your essence. Oh, wow. That's great. I, I want to talk a little bit more about your book and about how to protect your energy. Because yeah. um, I think back to a very difficult time in my career when I was definitely out of alignment. I, I didn't really know it, but I could feel it. I knew something was wrong. And I think I would have been desperate for your book at that moment. I got myself out of it by starting to write down small things that I love and just started to walk towards doing more things that I love. But I, love I think people would really benefit from hearing how to protect your energy, lean into your essence, and how do you do it in the workplace? Well, I love that you wrote down these little things and started to walk towards that. And it's a beautiful way of saying it. You know, one of the things that I talk about, you know, in the beginning of the book is like Dharma is not something you have to go find. It's already in something that's inside of you. Right? Michelangelo would look at a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside. Right? I just need to chisel away the layers that are hiding it. And Dharma is very much the same thing. It's something that you have been in touch with in your life. Now, that may have been when you were a kid or it may have been yesterday. Mm -hmm. right? It's different for all of us, but oftentimes it gets buried underneath other people's priorities, expectations, all the demands in our lives that can, that can hide us from who we are. So our job isn't necessarily to transform ourselves, it's to reveal ourselves. And the way that we do that is by chiseling away the layers that have gotten in its way. What you just said is really, I think, uh, related to one of the chisels I talk about in the book, which is what I call the bright spots chisel, which is basically starting to really tune in to the moments in our day, and in our week that are giving us these energetic hits, these moments where we feel like, oh, that something really interesting happened there. I felt myself come alive in, in that way. That might sound obvious, but, but here's the thing. We as human beings, the human mind is subject to what neuroscientists call hedonic adaptation. And what hedonic adaptation basically means is that we dismiss the really good moments and we dwell on the really negative ones, mm, right? That's so, the truth. Yeah, I mean, Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen, you know, says that we are sort of Velcro for the bad moments and we are Teflon for the good ones, right? And another way to like think about that is we tend to look at the bad moments, but we look through the good ones, mm. right? And what the Bright Spots Chisel sort of encourages us to do is just we start to tune into these bright spots in our day. What we will find is that they can be little portals. They can be little windows back into our essence, but it requires us really tuning in. So the, in, this, in the book, I talk about a nurse named Karen Strzok, who she was a nurse at a hospital, major hospital and leading a, a pretty big unit. But, you know, kind of like you, it sounds like she was like not quite sure that she was in her place. Like she wasn't quite feeling it. She was doing important work. She saw it happening with her patients, but she just felt like a malaise. But she realized that like the one moment, the one task that she was doing that day that gave her this energetic hit was when she was doing patient paperwork, when she was literally filling out patient paperwork, which wow. was weird. Yeah, that is Because odd. all the other nurses she knew- Hated it. <laughs> hated patient paperwork. But for some reason, she loved filling out these really mundane forms. Wow. And she's like, why is that? Yeah. And what she realized is that there were these moments when she was filling out these forms, she started to go deeper into this bright spot. And she realized that when she was able to write about a patient's story, not just like what their like clinical details were, but who they were, who they loved, 
who was waiting for them back at home when they left the hospital. When she could fill out details like that, that was what gave her an energetic hit. Mm. So she started to spend her train rides writing more of that. She started to take some of the, the stories that were inspiring to her at the hospital, and she just started to write about those. And for most of the years that followed, these were empty pages, like meaning that they were like, they didn't go anywhere. But eventually, some of these sentences strung together paragraphs, strung together pages, strung together like a screenplay, which ended up becoming a movie. You know, and she was able to do that while while being a full time nurse. And you know, the point being, you don't have to a- abandon everything that's happening in your life in order to transform the way you live. We can take this essence that we have, and we can start to express that throughout our day. We can start to bring it into our mornings. We can start to find little ways to express it throughout our day. You know, this is the accountant who's kind of an artist at heart, and so when they go into a presentation with their clients. They're using visuals more than they're using spreadsheets, right? Because it taps into their artistic personality. And there are all these little ways that we can start to express our essence in in our day, even if it's like something that feels completely unrelated. What would you say to someone who wants to start 2024 with a different mindset, perhaps looking to make a change, or perhaps looking to make a change within to make their work more satisfying? What would you say to them? I love the question. And, you know, I think that what many of us do who are looking to make a change in our lives at the beginning of a year is we'll create a to-do list. And I think to-do lists are like, they have issues. <laughs> they have issues. I mean, for, you know, for many reasons. And, and But like, I think one of them is that they can make us feel really bad in that, like, if we're not hitting our goal, it's like we're losing. Right. And I think that that's not the way that life works. I think we lose in order to learn. I think failure is a wonderful teacher and success is a lousy teacher. The point being that I think that we can reframe the to-do list to a to-learn list. Mm. The way that I, I sort of arrived on this is like when I was starting to write my first book, I was really daunted by this idea of like, how am I going to do this? Like I'm at that point in time, I'm working in tech. What I know how to write are lines of code. I don't know how to write lines for a page, Right. but I really wanted to do this. And so I set a goal of Mm. like, I'm going to write a book this year. And it turned every day into feeling bad because I was not getting further towards my goal. A lot Mm. of the pages I was writing were just crap. Mm. And I was like, this is just making me feel terrible. And so I ended up shifting from I want to write a book to I want to become a better writer. Mm. I want to learn how to become a better writer. And when I did that, what ended up happening was I was still adopting the same habits, meaning I was still getting up early every morning to write, but I felt so much better about it because even the stuff that wasn't working, that was ending up in the trash bin, I knew that that was still helping me become a better writer. I was learning what wasn't working, right? And the energy that came with this to learn goal and compared to the energy that came with this to do goal was so different Mm. that I was writing more. I was looking forward to my writing sessions. I got there faster. I ended up, I ended up writing the book because I had to, you know, I had to write every day if I wanted to be a better writer. So the habit stuck. And I think that that's something that if you're listening, I would encourage you to, to really consider, which is like most of us come into a new year with goals. How do we reframe this to-do into a to-learn? Because the wonderful thing about a to-learn is that win or lose, you're learning, Mm -hmm. right? And you are going to inevitably, in any goal that's worthwhile, have setbacks, have mistakes, have, but all of that is still grist for the mill. It's still really, really good. In fact, 
what the science and research tells us is that those setbacks actually turn into stepping stones and even bigger stepping stones than the winds do. So how cool would it be if all of a sudden every day of your life feels worthwhile and feels like you're making progress, even if it isn't going your way? And in even if your your quote unquote to-do list or goal list includes becoming more aware of your own dharma. I mean, how many people yeah. actually think about that? I mean, it's a very lofty concept, but it's one that every person on earth could spend some time thinking about and probably end up in a better mindset because of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, I, and I'll give you one question that I think is is worth pondering, which is what in your life would you do if you didn't, you weren't compensated for it? Mm-hmm. And no one really knew about it, mm. meaning it wasn't something that you could promote on social. It was just something that you were doing. And that's not to say, by the way, that we should go do things for free when we have bills to pay or that it isn't worth promoting your work if you're proud of it. It's not to shame any of that. What it is to say is if you just as a as more of a heart, a heart centered exercise, if you remove those layers just for a moment, you remove those factors, what is it that you would continue to do? You know, like for me, I love to tell stories. I'm pretty good at it. I'm not like exceptional at it, but I love to do it. Meaning that like I would sit here day in, day out and just write stories. I would be on conversations with with you, Kate, and telling and swapping stories because I, I, I think that there's something so powerful about that. I don't need to be compensated for it. I don't need to have storyteller in my LinkedIn profile, but it's something that I know is tapped into my essence. And so if you can remove the layer of what would you do, if you can remove like the layer of like compensation and ask yourself, what would I do for free? And if you can remove the layer of fame and say, what would I do if nobody knew that I was doing it? If you can start to kind of isolate those factors out and say, what would I do anyway? That is a pretty good indicator of something that's probably tied into your essence. Oh, that's good. I've heard a lot of people ask, ask the question, what would you do for free? But never the second question. And that really removes ego. Your second question yeah. removes all ego because it really gets to you. We are on this planet alone. I mean, we're with many people, but at the end of the day, we're born alone and we die alone. So it's mm-hmm. very important to kind of to foster that. It is exactly 55 minutes to the hour. And um, <laughs> given what you said, I would not dare go a minute over it, Sunil. So you have some time <laughs> to prepare for your next call. But I have to tell you, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And I'm really fascinated by your work and, and will definitely continue to follow you. Okay, thanks so much. I, I'm a huge fan of your show and I really love being on. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.